But it's our, our joy this morning to open to actually the Gospel of Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Perhaps you recognize that famous quote of C.T. Studd, a missionary. It's a helpful and clarifying reminder of why we're on this planet. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, the truth is every day is a battle. Life in a fallen world is not easy. All around us are temptations seeking to draw our attention away from the things that matter the most. The world, of course, offers us endless purposes for our life. The world offers us health as a potential purpose for life, and many fall into the trap of pursuing health and youth with all of their resources, time, and energy. The world offers us family as a potential purpose for life, and many spend all of their time and resources trying to craft the perfect family life with the perfect vacations and perfect things for their kids to be involved in, in hopes of finding fulfillment. The world offers us financial stability as a purpose for life. Some, of course, pursue that with abandon, seeking to be as wealthy as possible, Others simply seek financial stability in the sense of, I just want to get over the next hurdle, the next promotion, and then I'll be there. I just want to reach comfortability. I just want my 401k to be where it needs to be. I just want to meet my needs. But the truth is, all of those are poor, unbiblical purposes for life. And if you make any of those things your purpose for living, you will find yourself completely dissatisfied and disappointed, disappointed. Because what happens is we find that if in God's providence we reach that goal and that mountaintop experience and whatever purpose that we've created for ourselves, we get to the top of that mountain only to look to the other side and realize it didn't satisfy. It didn't work. Or, like often happens, we spend our days trying to reach that mountaintop, trying to fulfill one of these purposes for our lives, pouring our energy and resources into it, only to find it constantly elusive, eluding our grasp, just never seeming to get to that point of satisfaction. You know, it's interesting, as I was thinking about this this week, I was dwelling on the fact that Oftentimes, both our greatest joys in life, our highest moments in life, and also our heaviest trials, our darkest days, both of them equally tempt us to take our eyes off of what is truly primary in the Christian life. Both our greatest days and our worst days can tempt us to turn away our eyes from the Lord. We see this, of course, as an illustration in the life of the people of Israel. You remember when God brought the people out of Egypt into the wilderness, they grumbled against God and against Moses because they, they lacked certain things they desired. They wanted meat. Uh, they, they, they wanted water. They wanted things that were, we would say, basic necessities. But when they didn't have those, when they were unfulfilled, they turned against God. But then fast forward to when God provides for those needs, both in the wilderness and then, of course, ultimately in the promised land where the people are fat and happy, They're, they've got all that they want and then some, what happens? They turn away from the Lord. 
They turn to idolatry. Hosea recounts this in Hosea 13, verses 5 and 6. This is God speaking. He says, I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. Of course, we can't be too harsh when thinking of Israel because the truth is we're tempted towards the same things, aren't we? When our health, finances, family life, or fill in the blank is not where we wish it was, we often cry out to God in earnest, begging for his help, sometimes struggling sinfully with discontentment and selfishness. But then when he comes along and brings some measure of relief and some measure of answer to those prayers, we find our gratitude short-lived. And if he allows us to maintain some level of prosperity in that area, we may even find ourselves pridefully attributing some measure of that success to our own selves. We fall into the same trap. So the question is, what are we to do? As believers who sincerely want to serve and honor the Lord in every season of life, how can we maintain consistency in our devotion to him as our circumstances are changing all the time? Well, over the next two weeks, I want to help us answer that question. We're going to take just a short pause on our study of Hebrews and look at this question of how to be consistent in our walk with the Lord in our best moments and in our worst. And in order to do that, really, it's, it's quite simple. We have to have a thoroughly biblical perspective a perspective that cuts across every single moment of our lives, a a purpose in life that can be our purpose every waking moment regardless of our circumstance. We have to understand why we are on this planet. Why has God put you here? What does he want you to do? What is the calling that every Christian is to be fulfilling? For the Christian, there is a unifying calling that trumps all other purposes for life and gives us this call of direction and clarity in the midst of every season. We're going to talk about that over the next two weeks. Today we're going to look at the mission itself. What is it God has called us to do? And next week we're going to look at how that mission should be truly uh, transformative for our perspective. Now, I don't intend for this study necessarily to break a lot of new ground. I think for many of you, if you've been in Christ for any time at all, most of the things that we'll cover will likely be things you've heard before. But this is a ministry of remembrance. I want to bring us back to those key crucial things that we so easily forget on our best days and on our worst, if we're not careful. We've seen in both the book of Hebrews and in Colossians the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen his supremacy, we've seen his superiority, and we've seen that he is undeniably the head of the church. As the head of the church then, he has the right to tell the church, every single Christian, what our mission in life is to be. He is, has the authority to tell us how we're to arrange our lives. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. What is the mission that Christ has given to the church? And to find that, we're going to look at a very familiar passage, but I want you to try to read it with new eyes, with fresh eyes. Pretend you've never read this before and let these truths wash over you anew as we consider them together this morning. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. 
But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A familiar text, one hopefully you have memorized, but the main idea is very simple. Every Christian is called to make disciples, strengthened by the promise of Christ's abiding presence. Every Christian is called to make disciples strengthened by the promise of Christ's abiding presence. Just to give you some of the context here, of course, this is after the resurrection. Jesus appeared first, Matthew says, to a group of women. Matthew chooses only to focus on two of those women, but the other gospel writers inform us there were a total of four. Matthew focuses on Mary Magdalene and another Mary who is identified as the mother of James and Joseph and the wife of Clopas. But also, we see that Salome, the mother of James and John, was there along with Joanna. Now, these ladies are told by an angel that Jesus has risen from the dead and that they're to go to his remaining 11 disciples and tell them to travel to Galilee where they will meet him in person. On their way to leave, these four ladies encounter the resurrected Christ himself. They see Jesus. And so they go back and they obey the, the angel's message and they, they go and tell the 11 that Jesus has risen from the dead and they are to then meet him in Galilee. John MacArthur notes that the trip from Jerusalem to Galilee would have taken about a week. And so Jesus actually appears to the disciples a couple of other times before they actually make it to the mountain in Galilee where they're supposed to be. We know from John chapter 20, we have that famous scene with Thomas, you remember, and where Jesus comes in and he reveals himself and tells Thomas, here, touch my, touch my, my hands, touch my side. And then in John 21, apparently as they arrive in Galilee, they go fishing. And Jesus appears to them while they're fishing as well. All of that leads up to this grand moment that we call the Great Commission at the end of Matthew chapter 28. In Acts chapter 1 verse 3, it says that Jesus appeared several times uh, after his resurrection over a period of 40 days until he finally ascended to the Father. If we put that timeline together, we are roughly somewhere between 20 and 25 days after the resurrection of Christ when our scene takes place here in Matthew 28. Now, this narrative account really has two scenes with three crucial instructions. Two scenes and three crucial instructions. We'll look at those scenes together. The first scene happens in verses 16 and 17. We'll call it the setting the setting. It really lays the backdrop for what the primary scene of this text will be. Look back at verses 16 and 17. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Now he begins that these 11 disciples 
obeyed the commission that was given to them by these ladies and by Jesus himself to go on to Galilee where they would meet with him. Now, just so you know, there is some debate here on was this limited truly to only the 11 or were there others there with them also? And certainly there could have been others. Some suspect that this is the time that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 where the 500 of Jesus' disciples gathered together for this moment. That could certainly be the case, but it's, it's difficult to be definitive in that way because Matthew's pretty clear here. The 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. So if nothing else, he wants us at least to focus on the interaction here between the 11 and Jesus Christ, but it may be that there were others there. Notice it says that they went to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. We're not told what that mountain is or where it is. We just know it's in the region of Galilee. Obviously, this could have been a place that they had gone during the ministry of Christ. It could have been a place that was familiar to them, but that would just be speculation for us to to pick a certain place. The point is they're obedient. They go to where they're told to go, and when they see Jesus, notice their immediate reaction is worship. It says, when they saw him, they worshiped. Him. That word worship is to lay prostrate before him. They, they gave him the worship that was due him. Notice there's no rebuke for the worship because it was right, because he was the Lord Jesus Christ. They worship him appropriately and Jesus receives that worship because he is in fact God. It's a proof of the divinity of Christ that their first initial right response was an act of worship. That is not uh, too surprising, but what is surprising is the next statement in verse 17. But some were doubtful. Some were doubtful. Now, what exactly does Matthew mean here when he says that some doubted? Well, I think, honestly, this... This is easy to understand if we just put it in the context, if we just take ourselves and place ourselves there. It can't mean that they were doubting the resurrection because we already know from context, John 20 has already happened, John 21 has already happened, Jesus has made it very clear, the disciples have already declared that he is risen from the dead. So it's not that they doubted the fact of the resurrection, but if you just picture the scene for a moment, if Jesus appeared in the distance walking towards them, When it says some doubted, I think the idea is some were unsure if this person coming towards them initially was in fact the resurrected Christ. Not that, not the doubt around the resurrection itself, but is this person Jesus? And and Jesus quickly quiets any doubt or any fear as we enter into the second scene where we're really gonna spend the bulk of our time. Scene number two is in verses 18 to 20. We'll call it the commission, the commission. In verse 18, it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, Jesus came. The idea is Jesus must have been some distance away, and so he begins to walk towards them. Now, visibly, as he gets closer, all of them can see this is, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just to be doubly sure, as he's walking, he begins to speak. Now, in our text, in the English text, it just says, He came up and spoke to them. But in the the Greek text, the idea of motion is there. It's as Jesus is walking, he is speaking to them. So they're hearing his voice, and then finally he arrives to them and says something very specifically. The words that he's going to say here have been etched in stone of monuments and buildings, and rightly so, because this is the mission of the church 
of every single Christian. And he's going to give a commission to these 11 that goes far beyond them to every other believer. And we understand that that's the case because at the end of the text, he says that this will be in effect until the end of the age. We know that the apostles have passed and the end of the age has not yet come. We are still in this age, the church age, awaiting for the return of Christ. And so as long as we are in this age, this commission remains in effect. Therefore, it is the commission for you and I this morning if we're in Christ. Now, as we think about the commission itself, we can break it down into three crucial instructions. Three instructions. The first instruction is in verse 18, we'll call it Christ's credentials. Christ's credentials. He begins by explaining why it is that he has the right to make this commission. Verse 18, he begins saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority, notice the word all. All is to give us the scope of the authority of Christ. And just in case we're tempted to miss how big that scope is, he defines it for us by saying that authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. That describes the word all. What he means is absolutely nothing stands outside the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is in the heavenly realms. So every intelligent being in the heavenly realms, angels, uh, even over the, those who have fallen, over Satan, over the demons, the redeemed who are in heaven, he has authority over all of them. And on earth, that is the entire created universe. Every molecule in the universe is underneath the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's holistic. It's all in the grandest sense of the term. Now, when he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and on earth, he doesn't mean, of course, that there is, is no rebellion that's currently still going on against him. Obviously, that is happening. There are unbelievers. There are those who rebel against God. Uh, Satan and his demons are still very active in their rebellion. What he's saying is all authority has been given to him, and therefore that rebellion will be judged. There's coming a day in which he will exercise his authority in perfection. There's coming a day when he will rule, and he will rule with perfect justice and righteousness. But until that day, all those who rebel against him will, will have to understand that there's coming a day in which they will have to give an account, in which justice will be served from this one they're sinning against. By the way, this is a warning and an invitation to us this authority that's been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is your judge. Jesus Christ rules over you and over me. You personally, as an individual, are accountable to him. And the scripture says that what's required of us if we want to be right with him is perfect, perfection, perfect righteousness. If you want to come to Jesus on your own, you've got to come perfectly problem with that, of course, is none of us can do that. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve the wrath of this Jesus Christ, who is our authority. So why is it that he's not poured out that wrath on any of us yet? Second Peter 3, 9 explains, says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
What we understand is that this Jesus, who is the great authority, the great judge of all, the God over all, is also a God of grace and mercy and love, who delights in saving sinners. He delights in saving those who have rebelled against him. The Bible says, if you'll repent of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding that your only hope is not your righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect life, and his death on the cross and resurrection. If you'll put your faith in Christ alone, the Bible says you will be saved. You'll be saved from the wrath that you and I both deserve. This authority that belongs to Jesus ought to cause all of us to stop in our tracks and to worship, to bow our knee to him. Listen, don't waste another day in rebellion against Jesus Christ. If you're not in Christ this morning, turn to him in repentance and faith and find true eternal forgiveness in the Son of God. But Jesus uses this introduction, this announcement of his authority to set up a command, a commission, for us. And that brings us to instruction number two, Christ's commission. Christ's commission. Let's look back at the text in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That word therefore ties right back into the statement that he's just made about his authority. He says, all authority has been given to me, therefore, I've got something I'm going to tell you to do. Based on my authority, here is my command to you, disciples, and to us. Now, in English, it's difficult to understand where the emphasis lies. If we look at the English text, it would appear there are two commands here. It would appear that the word go is an imperative, a command, and that the word make disciples is a command. The problem is that's not true. And in fact, many messages on the Great Commission focus on the word go, on the going. We just need to go. The problem is that's not the emphasis that Jesus makes. Grammatically, we're able to tell where the emphasis actually falls. The word go is not a command, it's actually a passive participle. Participles are typically used uh, to, to give descriptions. Uh, most of the time we translate them into English with the words ing or the letters ing at the end. In fact, if you look back at the same verse, the word baptizing and the word teaching are both participles and they both appear with that ing ending. They're descriptive terms. The word go is a passive participle. And so we might translate it then as something like having been sent or as you are going. The point is it is an assumption rather than a command. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that it's not important for us to go. As believers, we are to be going. We, but the, the point is that as, if you're a Christian, the Bible assumes that you are going. This is, this is us living our lives. Some are going to faraway places. Some of us are just going to work. But wherever we are going, we see ourselves as those who have been sent out. We are on mission. We're not just going to work. We're not just going on vacation. We're not just going anywhere. We are going as those who have been sent on a mission. That's the point of the word go. The world is our mission, Phil. But the point here, the emphasis falls on what we're to be doing in our going. What have we been sent to do? The command 
it falls on the two words, make disciples. That's the command. That's the imperative in this text. As, as those who have been sent, make disciples. Now notice he does not say, go and make converts. He says specifically, go and make disciples. Now there's an important distinction there. What is a disciple? I mean, after all, if we're to be disciples and then make disciples, I think it's pretty important that we begin by defining the term. What is a disciple? And some might say, well, a disciple is a pupil that sits underneath the teaching of an instructor. Historically, the word can be used that way, but that's not the way it's used in the New Testament, and it's not the way that Jesus uses the word as he talks about what it means to be a disciple. It's not just a command to go out and convince people to listen to Jesus' teaching. Kittle says it this way, Jesus does not seek to impart information, but to awaken commitment to himself. Let me just put it in Jesus' own words. Here's Jesus speaking about discipleship, John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you, count, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Notice that, if you continue in my word, that that implies obedience, right? It's not just coming and listening to him teach. He's saying, if you really wanna be my disciple, continue in obedience to the things you have heard from me. How about Luke 14, beginning in verse 25? It says, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then... None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying a true disciple of his is one who has seen Jesus as the most valuable of all and has humbled himself in repentance and faith, not just simply believing the facts that Jesus is saying, but who has said, I'm turning from my way for living for myself and I've turned to follow and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a disciple. That's what we're to be and it's what we're to make. Go and make disciples. That's what a true believer is. Understand that there are some who would want to make a a distinction between a convert and a disciple, as if to say that you can come to true saving faith in Jesus, but never actually follow him with your life. The only problem with that is the Bible does not make such a distinction. In fact, the Bible says quite the opposite, as we just read. If you want to be a true believer, a true Christian, 
You must come humbling yourself, not just simply believing cognitively the facts, but following after the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up your cross, he says, and follow me. Now, now that we know what a disciple is, who exactly are we to go and pursue that they might become disciples? Well, simply he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. All the nations. Every people group, Jew, Gentile, is to be pursued with this great commission, the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling them to repentance and faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. We as God's people don't get to prioritize one group over another. It doesn't matter whether a person's ethnicity, status, culture, language, it doesn't matter. We just go to all the nations, all people. Of course, contextually, this was very important, right? The Jews had thought of the Messiah as as their Messiah. And if you wanted to come to their Messiah, then you had to become Jewish, right? It was the only way in. And what Jesus is saying, no, all can come to me. All can come to me in the same way, through the same gospel and repentance and faith. It, It took a while for the disciples to fully understand this, but they get it later in the book of Acts. And of course, the nations are reached for Christ and continue to be today. But I want you to understand when it says all the nations, that means that making disciples locally and abroad are equally important, needed, and valid. It's easy to think that only those that go to Africa or or Timbuktu somewhere are, are the ones really fulfilling the Great Commission. And God may be calling some of you to go to Timbuktu, and you should go, and you should share the gospel there. But you should also share the gospel with your neighbor and with your kids and with your parents and your grandparents and your coworker and your soccer coach and everybody else. The Great Commission, the mission is wherever you are, whether that's local, on a plane traveling, or wherever you go. The mission never stops. We live in the world. We live on the mission field. Now, he goes on to define and explain how. How do we go about this, making disciples? And he describes it with two participles. We read them earlier. They are baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. Let's start with the first of those, baptizing. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism here is identified, as in the rest of the New Testament, as an outward expression of internal faith and repentance. The faith and repentance has already happened in response to the gospel, but the baptism is a a public testimony. It's a witness to the world that I have been transformed. I've, I've died to my sins. I've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. I am a follower of his. Since the very earliest days, because of this commission, baptism has been closely connected with conversion because it was a public testimony. That's not to say, we need to be very careful here, that baptism is, is required for salvation. I don't mean to imply that in the slightest. But it is assumed in the New Testament that a true believer will, will quickly follow in baptism to publicly proclaim that they are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the pattern that begins immediately after Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, immediately there is this simple pattern. The gospel is preached. Some respond to the gospel in repentance and faith, and they are baptized. 
and then it happens over and over and over again. This is the normal pattern of the New Testament. It's been the normal pattern of the New Testament church on into the modern church because of this commission. It was given to us by our Lord and it will continue until the end of the age. We see it in Acts chapter 2, 38, the very first gospel message coming from the mouth of Peter after the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then it goes on in Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch preaches the gospel, faith and repentance, he's baptized. Acts chapter 9, Paul is confronted by Jesus Christ. He repents, God sends to him um, Ananias, he goes and baptizes Paul. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and his whole household hear the gospel, repent, they're baptized. Acts 16, the Philippian jailer hears the gospel, repents, and is baptized. This is the New Testament witness, and it's still the pattern for today. We preach the gospel to anyone that will listen, and all those who come in faith and repentance are baptized as a public testimony of their faith in Christ. This, by the way, is why we require believers' baptism for membership in our church. It's not because it's a requirement for this local church, it's a requirement to be a part of the church. It's what Christians do. Again, not to save you, but to declare your faith to the world. It's an initial act of obedience. And so, while we're on the subject, if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're here this morning and you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized not to seal the deal, not to finish your salvation, but to tell the world, I am a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has changed me and forgiven me of my sins. So don't hesitate. You can sign up on our website today to be a part of the next baptism class. I would encourage you to do that. But notice the name in which we are to be baptized. He says, go therefore, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice something here. The word name is singular, but then it's attributed to three different persons. This is a doctrine we understand as the Trinity. It's understanding that God is one person, or one, uh, one God, and yet exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we represent that in baptism. God, the totality of God, is involved in your redemption, and that's to be declared when a person is saved. One God, three equal persons. Now, obviously, this teaching by Jesus to baptize them assumes evangelism. It assumes that we understand that as we are going and making disciples, that we're telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we connect those new believers to the local church. They are then baptized and begin to be further disciples. With that in mind, let me just ask you, how long has it been since you personally shared the gospel with someone else? When was the last time that you shared the gospel with an unbeliever? You understand that's, that's the assumption of what we'll be doing with our lives. It's not only for those who are extremely gifted in that way. There are some who have the gift of evangelism, and that's, that is the way that God primarily uses them is through evangelism. But all of us are assumed to be those who are going. So when's the last time? 
How much of a priority is it in your life to pray for the lost, to open your mouth and share with the lost, to make plans to get lost people into your house so that you can have the opportunity to share with them, to go places in your neighborhood or at your work where you will bump into people you know are lost so that you'll have the opportunity. It's assumed that this will be the heartbeat of every Christian. And this is why this message came to my mind. It's because I know as your pastor, I have the the privilege that many of you don't get to have and that I know more of what's going on in the lives of the individuals of our church than any one of you. And I know there are many are at really high points in life, exciting points that we rejoice with you over. And then in God's providence, there are some who are really in the grind of a trial. I mean, really in the dark, darkest days of their life. And what I want to help all of us understand is there is one clarifying mission. We're all doing the same thing on our best days and on our worst, we're making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a clarifying goal for the Christian life. You understand it. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. If we want to boil that down into this text, what it is is we're to be disciples who are growing in Christ, who are making disciples that are growing in Christ. On your best days and on your darkest days, let that be a clarifying voice, a clarifying mission to say, even when I barely have the strength to get out of bed today, what is the point? Why does God have me here? To be a disciple who's growing in Christ, who's making disciples who are growing in Christ. That is the goal for that day. And so when you struggle, bring yourself back to this. Who could I share Christ with today? Who could I be an encouragement to in Christ today? And that's where the rubber meets the road with a very practical text that we all understand, hopefully from the earliest days of your Christian life, and yet often it doesn't define our lives in the way it should. Let that be a clarifying call for each of us, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because we've shared the gospel with them through which God has redeemed them. But that's not the end of the Great Commission. That's not the only part of the Great Commission. There's another participle here, another descriptive word. It's the word teaching. Teaching. Look back at the text. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You know, far too often... When we come to the Great Commission, we stop with the evangelism aspect of the Great Commission. In fact, if I say Great Commission, perhaps the primary thing you think of is evangelism. As we've said, that is a huge part of the Great Commission. We're to be telling people about Christ and seeing them come to faith by God's grace. But it's not the end goal. We're not just going out and getting people to sign cards and become converts. We're making disciples. And that includes teaching. Teaching. But not just teaching, teaching what? Look back at the text. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. All. Notice how inclusive that is. That that means that in the church, we cannot simply boil down our pulpit messages to sort of a cyclical teaching calendar that rotates between marriage and finances and friendships and parenting and having a happy life. We're to teach all that God has commanded. 
That's why we practice expositional preaching. It keeps me, honestly, accountable so that we don't skip things that are hard. We don't skip things that require our brains to sweat. We give all that he has commanded. And notice that we're not just supposed to teach for the sake of knowing things. We're not just filling people's minds with with instruction. What does he say? Teaching them to what? To observe all things. That word observe could also be translated as to keep. We're to be teaching these believers, every believer, whether they were saved yesterday or a hundred years ago, to be keeping, observing all that Christ has commanded. In fact, James tells us this, James 1.22, he says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Listen to that statement. Those who only hear the word and refuse to do it are deluding themselves. You're deceiving yourself. You're coming to church, hearing truth, and pacifying your conscience by being attached to the church in some way, but by not seeking to obey those truths and humbling yourself in true repentance, you reveal your true heart, that you're just deluding yourself. You're deceiving yourself. Teach them to observe, to keep, to obey all things that I have commanded you. Ask yourself this morning, is that your heart? None of us are perfect. All of us are sinners. All of us have areas that we're growing. But do you have a sensitive heart to truth that when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, you're willing to turn from that sin and actually keep what the scripture says by God's grace? That's what it is to be a true disciple. There's another key implication here, and that is the need for the local church. All of this implies the planting of churches, of churches flourishing. We see this as Paul goes out to fulfill the Great Commission himself. What happens? Yes, he goes and preaches the gospel, but as people get saved, he gathers them together, appoints qualified leadership, and starts a church, and then goes on to the next place. The idea is that discipleship happens naturally in and around the life of the local church. We're going out, we're sharing the gospel, new believers are coming in, being baptized, and we're all fellowshipping together, sitting under the word together, growing as disciples. That is the idea, and we see that play out in the book of Acts. But there's a third instruction here that we can't miss. Look back at the text. Instruction number three, Christ's commitment. Christ's commitment. At the end of verse 20 says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now the words that he says there can't be overstated. The significance of Jesus saying, These special words cannot be highlighted enough. Don't miss this. In fact, in the Greek text, there's there's emphasis added to the words to where we could translate it this way. I myself am with you. I myself. You get me as you fulfill this command. And notice he says, when and and for how long? Always even to the end of the age. I'm coming with you. 
I'll be with you as you as a disciple grow in your discipleship and make other disciples. As you fulfill this commission, Christian, I am with you and I'm with you always and I'll be with you always until the end of the age. Now, what could be more comforting than that? In fact, I I hate that we don't translate this particular phrase literally because literally in the Greek text it says this, and behold, I myself am with you all the days until the completion of the age. All the days. I like that because it's even more specific than just the word always. It's not just a blanket promise, Christian. It means today and tomorrow and the next day. All the days. Your best day, he's with you to complete this mission. Your worst day, he's with you. When you wonder, how am I gonna do this? How can I possibly focus on making disciples when the Lord's brought this this all-consuming trial or this all-consuming thing that's in front of me in my circumstance? How could I possibly be focused on discipleship? All the days, all the days to hold you fast, to strengthen you in the mission all the days, every single day. Jesus is a good leader. He has authority over all things. And yet in his kindness, he doesn't say, I just want you to do this and do this and do this. He says, I want you to do this and I'm coming with you. And I'm coming with you through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Christ himself is with us every moment, every day. In the simplest of terms, Christian, your life is to glorify God in this way. You're a disciple who is to be growing in your discipleship as you make other disciples. For me, it's helpful to simplify life to that level. That's what I'm supposed to be doing today. It doesn't mean there aren't other tasks. It doesn't mean that you don't have a family and a job and all those things, but it shapes all of those things and helps you see what's your primary task in and through all of those things. And so as we boil this down, I really want to draw your mind to three points of application. They're very simple, they're very obvious. Number one, personally obey the Great Commission. Personally obey the Great Commission. That is, as we said before, this begins by you becoming a disciple through true repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only then can you even begin to live out this commission. But secondly, faithfully fulfill the great commission. Faithfully fulfill the great commission. I want you to think about your circumstance in life, however difficult or wonderful it may be today, as the stage that God has given you for the fulfillment of this commission. Your circumstance brings you into contact with people you would not have otherwise come into contact with. And so you have opportunities. You may never have had opportunity to to before, to speak to people, to bring them the good news of Jesus Christ, to show them how a Christian bears up under the weight of trials, to show how a Christian in the greatest days of life gives the glory to another, recognition to our Savior. Thirdly, Daily remember that Christ goes with us in this work. He goes with you. This is not to be carried out in our own strength. We can't build the church. We're not called to build the church. Christ says, I will build my church. But he does call us to be faithful. 
And he promises that as we put one foot in front of the other, it is he who is with us, strengthening us every step of the way until he calls us home to glory. Now this week we've looked at the commission itself. And next week we'll see how this commission is to be transformative for our perspective of every situation. But as we close, I want us to end where we began. I want you to think on this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for the truths of these scriptures. We pray, God, that you would seal them in our hearts. Help us to follow you obediently, Lord, to to really be disciples who take your words seriously, who repent of sin, who seek to grow in our knowledge and obedience to you and to be faithful as you give us opportunity to make disciples, both through evangelism and through discipling and teaching all things that you've commanded. God, we pray that you would build your church as you said you would. Strengthen us in the task. We confess we need you to go with us every day, all day, And we thank you that through this text, we're reminded that we have that promise. Thank you for your goodness in the gospel to us. Be with us now as we celebrate it in the way that you gave us in the Lord's table. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.